Welcome to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences, Inspiring Centuries of Progress. This is an episode jointly presented by the Academy and the Beyond Batten Disease Foundation. On November 19th and 20th of 2014, the Academy held a workshop called Drug Targeting the Lysosome. That's a title that, if you don't happen to be a biomedical scientist, probably doesn't mean much to you. It probably sounds about as dry and esoteric as an event can sound. But actually, it was a meeting of brilliant, dedicated people working on the cutting edge of what we understand about the workings of our own bodies on the most fundamental level. And it was organized in a unique and innovative way, bringing together a group of experts who wouldn't normally be working together or even sitting in the same room in an attempt to bring a whole new kind of thinking to some truly life-and-death problems. And the thing that originally set the wheels in motion that allowed this meeting to happen was as human and relatable as things get, a family crisis. One of those snowballing, it couldn't possibly get worse and then it does kinds of family crises that we all hope never happens to our family. It began when a couple in Austin, Texas, Craig and Charlotte Benson, noticed that their young daughter, Christiane, seemed to be having problems with her eyesight. Here's Craig to explain. So we first noticed uh, when she was five that she was starting to hold books closer to her face. She was sitting, sitting a little closer to the television. And so we thought, hey, maybe she needs some glasses. So we had actually scheduled an appointment with an optometrist. We only got a little more concerned when the optometrist suggested we go see a pediatric neurologist. <laughs> we go, well, you know, what has one got to do with the other? That obviously dialed the intensity up quite a bit. The intensity continued to grow when the neurologist sent them to a pediatric ophthalmologist, who then in turn referred them to a doctor who had been her teacher. This was on a Friday. Uh, we got in to see him the next Monday in Houston. So we had gone expecting something like Stargardt's or retinitis pigmentosa, you know, something that, you know, really directly affects, you know, vision. Uh, but while we were there, <clears throat> Dr. Lewis said, well, we're going to test for this other thing, too. It's, you know, probably nothing, very rare, unlikely, but we need to rule it out. And <clears throat> that was the first time that we had heard uh, about a condition called Batten. Juvenile Batten disease is a nickname for a condition called neuronal ceroid lipofusinosis type 3. It's one of a group of lysosomal storage diseases, which are very rare genetic conditions that affect the functioning of a specific part of the cells of a person's body, tiny organelles called lysosomes. Most of us know that our body is made up of microscopic units called cells. There are hundreds of different kinds of cells in our bodies, that have all evolved to do different kinds of jobs. Groups of thousands or even millions of complementary cells group together into tissues, which in turn group together to make our organs, the heart, the lungs, the skin, the muscles. What we might not be aware of, though, is that each of our millions of cells functions almost like an independent organism that works symbiotically with the cells around it and the body as a whole. And each cell contains things that are kind of like its own organs. We call them organelles. Mitochondria that burn sugar and fat to create energy for the cell. Ribosomes that build new proteins the cell can use to repair itself. The Golgi body that helps sort these proteins to make sure they're all going to the right place, and so forth. Lysosomes are the organelles that act kind of as the sanitation department of every cell. 
Here's Dr. Stephen Walkley, professor of neuroscience at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and director of the Rose F. Kennedy Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities Research Center. Every part of a cell has to be renewed at some point, and different kinds of molecules are renewed at different rates, but uh, so they have to be recycled, and uh, the single system in a cell that does this for all of the long-lived kinds of complex molecules is the lysosome. Lysosomes do this by taking in a molecule like a protein or a fat that's no longer useful to the cell and breaking it down into its component parts by using an array of kind of molecular solvents called enzymes. Here's Dr. Danielle Kirkovich, principal scientist of the Beyond Batten Disease Foundation. When we think of enzymes, think of the detergent commercials where they say, you know, cuts grease, cuts grass stains, cuts blood stains. That's what an enzyme does. It cuts proteins. And so this lysosome has 60 enzymes inside it. And its job is either to break down waste material in the cell or it's to break down other parts of cells so they can be refurbished. There are many different enzymes that are there dozens and dozens of them that can break down these complex molecules into smaller molecules, which then can either be transported or in some manner escape across the lysosomal membrane and get back into the cell. And then the cell uses those uh, to synthesize more complex molecules, which then get transported out to where they belong. And eventually they get recycled through the same mechanism. Lysosomal storage diseases happen when, for some reason, the lysosomes aren't successful at breaking down everything that they're taking in. And so these waste materials are building up inside the lysosomes and clogging them with piles of excess stuff. As I said to many families, it's a little bit like the, a recycling plant. And you can imagine a recycling plant that's dealing with glass and aluminum and paper and coming in all commingled and is taken apart. and. If the aluminum people, uh, collectors go on strike, you know, maybe the paper and glass keep going through, but uh, after a while you get this huge accumulation of aluminum. And, um, and this is what happens in a lysosomal disease. Some complex molecules keep getting processed, uh, but others don't because uh, there's a, a genetic defect in the way that the organelle can process one class of compounds. Eventually, the whole cell gets clogged with these piles of trash, like a city sidewalk during a garbage strike. Here's Dr. Kirkovich. What's basically happening is when you look under the microscope at a, a piece of tissue, um, you see the cell is um, engorged, and it's engorged with waste material. It's like it can't get rid of it. It can't break it down or can't send it out of the cell. A remarkable thing is that many of the body's cells can seem to handle this clog up, they keep right on functioning just fine for a long time. And when they do stop working, the body can replace them with new cells that step right up and do the same jobs as the old ones. Some cells, though, really can't handle this kind of malfunction. They begin shutting down much more quickly when those waste materials build up. Unfortunately, one of these is also a kind of cell that we can't replace. Once we've lost them, they're gone forever and they happen to be the cells that make up our most important and hardest to study organ, the brain. You know, our liver cells can die and be replaced. Um, our neurons, apart from a few very, very 
specific areas of the brain, the neurons that we're born with or the neurons we'll die with. And so you've got this tiny little cell, a neuron, that has to live 60 to 80 years or whatever. And uh, you can imagine if recycling is off just a little bit over 60 years, you're going to end up accumulating a lot of stuff inside that neuron, which is going to be harmful to the cell. And so it's the, for neurons, the lysosomal system really does have to work with exquisite precision for a long time. If you look at the skin cells, they look fine. You know, other than being engorged, they're functioning. Kids, kids don't have problems with their skin. But for about 75% of lysosomal storage diseases, it really hits the central nervous system. I often tell people, you know, maybe it's because it's the Lamborghini of cells we have in our body. You've got these high performance, really delicate cells, and they can't handle something that a, a bone cell or a muscle cell can handle. And as you can imagine, when parts of your brain aren't working properly, horrible things start to happen. The progression of juvenile Batten disease is as follows. So it starts with vision loss um, around age six and moves into, some, some of our families mentioned um, personality changes, something that a family would notice but maybe not even a school teacher. Because then in about two years, you start to see seizures. And seizures and psychosis can develop at any point during the disease. Um, usually in the teens, we see difficulty walking, sort of like a stair step. You know, you're fine and then you've got this big problem and then you're fine and then you've got this big problem. And so then by the time a child reaches 18 years old, he or she is most likely in a wheelchair full time. And from there, it gets progressively worse. You have to go from a wheelchair into a bed because you don't have any trunk control. You can't hold yourself up. Eventually, the brain damage gets so severe that the patient loses the ability to operate their internal organs, like the heart and the lungs, and they die, almost always before they reach their late 20s. And so this was the prognosis that was presented to Craig and his family for Christian, who until then had been a normal, healthy, happy kid. It took a, uh, you know, a little while to pick, pick ourselves up off the floor uh, for that. That obviously wasn't what we were expecting our life was going to be like, and it wasn't, um, you know, it, was just, it was just hard to get your mind around it in, in that moment. When Craig and his family did pick themselves up, though, they realized that because of his background, they were in a singularly empowered position to do something proactive about their daughter's condition. While not a scientist, Craig had experience working in biotechnology as well as banking and finance, and the Bensons were able to put these resources together to create the Beyond Batten Disease Foundation, which has grown astonishingly quickly into a real global force in raising awareness and funding research about these lysosomal diseases. This was in 2008. Uh, by 2009, we were able to award the largest single grant ever in the history of Batten disease, uh, which was $2.5 million. We realized that while we started out as, a, as an advocate for our daughter, you know, what we've become is really the voice for all children with Batten disease. Which brings us to this event at the Academy. Batten disease is one of around 50 different lysosomal storage diseases, all of which have different genetic causes and different effects on the way this intracellular recycling system functions. 
The first discovered and probably most well-known is Tay-Sachs disease, which famously appears almost exclusively in people of Ashkenazi Jewish heritage. Others include conditions with names like Gaucher disease and Hurler syndrome. In each of these, a different genetic variation is causing a lysosomal malfunction that leads to the buildup of a different kind of waste material. In the case of Batten disease, that material is a protein called ATP synthase subunit C. Here's Dr. Kirkovich. Well, what, we, what we've learned is, is as technology has progressed, we've been able to decipher that, you know, one disease has this kind of garbage that's backing up, this other disease has a different kind of garbage that's backing up. For us, it's subunit CATPase. Here's Dr. Forbes Porter of the National Institute of Health speaking from the podium at the Academy about another of these conditions called Neiman-Pick disease type C, or NPC for short. Um, it is in the category of the lysosomal storage diseases in an MPC. You get endolysosomal storage of unesterified cholesterol and other lipids. The results are unfortunately similar. Like Batten, Neiman-Pick is genetic, debilitating, fatal, and as of now, there's really no good way to treat it. There are no FDA-approved therapies. Something else that all of these diseases have in common is that they're extremely rare. Even the most prevalent have only a few hundred cases in the United States at any one time, with maybe a few thousand total worldwide. This is a big problem, because it makes it very hard for any one of them to attract sufficient resources to move towards an effective treatment, let alone a cure. If you're a major source of research funding, it's hard to justify devoting massive attention to a disease with only a few hundred diagnosed cases in the whole country, terrible as that disease may be, when things like Alzheimer's, cancer, diabetes, and heart disease kill millions every year. And that was really the inspiration for this two-day conference. If the researchers and the foundations that support them that have been built up around these rare lysosomal conditions could come together and share their resources, maybe the whole could be stronger than the sum of the parts. And it's a particularly exciting time to hold a meeting like this, because a handful of recent discoveries have opened up whole new areas of inquiry into the lysosomal system and what happens when it goes wrong. The first, and maybe most profound of these, is that lysosomes are a whole lot more complex and a whole lot more important than we originally thought. More than just a garbage truck, it turns out they are making very subtle decisions all the time about what to recycle and when and how, based on the current nutritional needs of the cell. At first, in 1955, we just thought it was this place that chopped up all of the uh, excess waste material. And that's all it did. And what we're finding is it's a lot more dynamic than that. That it's involved in nutrient sensing, and nutrient sensing as far as sensing whether or not the entire organism or the entire body or the target organ, in, in our instance, the brain, has enough nutrients to survive. Because if it doesn't, it actually goes around the cell and breaks it down to a skeleton crew of a cell so that the cell can still survive on fewer nutrients. So it's a lot more dynamic than we originally thought. This new way of thinking also means that when we have a disease of malfunctioning lysosomes, it's important to consider not only the excess waste material that's building up, but also the raw materials and nutritional guidance that healthy lysosomes provide and would now be missing. Here's Dr. Matthew McShaney, a neurology researcher with the Massachusetts-based firm Biogen iDEC Incorporated, 
speaking from the podium. One thing to keep in mind with lysosomal storage diseases, I think that's important, um, is that these are disorders of uh, accumulation. We talk about storage an awful lot. Uh, but these are also disorders of deficiencies where you're unable to sort of recycle and reprocess material that, that gets trapped in the lysosome, and you sort of set up a, a, a metabolic stress and an energy uh, uh, compromise with, within uh, the, the, uh, the cell and within the brain in, in itself. For many researchers, even those who have been working with lysosomes for a long time, this is a sea change in their whole understanding of cell biology. Here's Dr. Walkley again. I've said this at meetings before. I think, in, it, certainly in my career, uh, it's the most insightful new way of thinking about the lysosome that we've had, and it's transformative in many respects. A second huge breakthrough was the result of doing what scientists refer to as looking upstream of lysosomes. You see, all biological functions have to do with a chain of events. One thing causing another, causing another, and so forth. Think of something simple like raising your arm. The immediate process is that some of the muscles in your upper arm and shoulder contract, causing your arm to rise. But equally important are the things happening upstream of that. The signal from your brain that tells the muscles to contract. The blood supply that's feeding nutrients to those muscles to give them energy. And you can keep going. The digestive system that puts the nutrients in the blood. Even the teeth that chew the food that allows the nutrients to get into your digestive system. Everything in your body is connected. And often, biomedical breakthroughs happen when new research allows you to see better the other processes that are surrounding the one you're directly studying. Directly upstream from lysosomes are the genes in your DNA that make them. And directly upstream from them is a protein called transcription factor EB, or TFEB, which turns on those genes, letting them know that they need to get working. Here's Dr. Kirkovich again. Before this, we didn't know what actually made the lysosome do what it does. We didn't know that there was a transcriptional factor that turned on about 30 to 40 genes associated with lysosome activity and basically told the cell, you know what, you don't have enough lysosomes. You need to make a whole bunch more. Or you need to exocytose faster. Or you need to direct that traffic better. Directly upstream from TFEB in this system is a kinase, which is a kind of enzyme, with the not-so-catchy name the mammalian target of rapamycin. Its friends call it mTOR. And mTOR controls TFEB, keeps it on a leash, if you will, by phosphorylating it, meaning adding a chemical called phosphate to it, which prevents it from turning on those genes that would make it make more lysosomes. Here's Dr. Walkley again. So TFEB is uh, it's in the cytoplasm. It's a protein in the cytoplasm. But in order to, be, in order to have an effect, it has to leave the cytoplasm and go into the nucleus of the cell. And um, one of the recent discoveries that has been talked about a great deal at this meeting is that TFAB, in order to remain in the cytoplasm, is phosphorylated and by a kinase. That kinase is another protein complex that actually sits on the surface of the lysosome. Uh, it's called uh, the mTOR complex one. And um, when, uh, when it phosphorylates TFAB, it holds it in the cytoplasm, and so it's not effective at 
uh, at changing the state of the lysosomal system. But if mTOR is inactive and is not phosphorylating TFEB, then TFEB is free to go into the nucleus. When it goes into the nucleus, that's where it acts as a transcription factor, which then turns on a large number of genes that, that uh, are coding for lysosomal enzymes, other lysosomal proteins. And so you get this expansion of the lysosomal system when, when TFEB is able to do this. And there's you know, evidence beginning to emerge that in fact, if you could, if you could stimulate the lysosomal system to a greater degree, even in a lysosomal disease, you might be able to uh, actually generate, generate benefit for the, the cell and for the organ, for the individual, um, and to do that with a particular drug that would have the ability to, to uh, activate TFEB. These hypothetical TFEB and or mTOR treatments wouldn't solve the underlying problem in a lysosomal storage disease. The lysosomes still wouldn't be functioning as well as they should, but having more of them might lessen the severity of the buildup, and therefore the terrible symptoms of the disease. I always think of it like a heart bypass. You know, heart bypass doesn't cure uh, heart disease at all, but it gives you 10 more years of life. It's a long progressive illness, and if we can, you know, expand those quality of life years, that would be wonderful. Our ultimate goal is cure, and we're not going to stop until we get to cure. But we also appreciate that people are living with the disease today, and they need to live better. And it turns out that this radically improved understanding of the way lysosomes function might provide dramatic benefits for the study of these rare diseases like Batten, because they're starting to attract the attention of researchers who are working on much more common and much better funded conditions, like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease, which new evidence suggests may have lysosomal components. This is starting to create a positive feedback loop of attention on lysosomes that's opening up whole new avenues of support. Here's Dr. Rainer Kuhn, executive vice president of the German biotech company Evotech, who also serves on the board of directors of the German NCL Foundation, which is working to combat Batten disease in that country. So Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease are diseases where proteins accumulate. That's what we call the set of diseases, also proteinopathies. Né? And what we observe in this disease, when you do some more detailed molecular analysis, is also that kind of that protein homeostasis, so the, the balance between synthesis and degradation doesn't seem to really work properly, that's why proteins accumulate. And I think there is, there are molecular mechanisms that are related to each other. That's why it's interesting probably studying also rare diseases, if you even think are more interested in finding treatment for big diseases like Alzheimer's disease, because I think the molecular mechanisms uh, are quite related. Interestingly, lysosomes have also become an avenue of study for what's probably the largest disease research community, cancer researchers. But they're looking at lysosomes for the opposite reason. They want to see if they can make them more sick, function worse. Because if they could cause targeted lysosomal dysfunction in tumors, without having it spread to the rest of the body, it could potentially kill the cancerous cells and leave the healthy ones alone. Finding those kinds of connections and making the most of them was really the point of this particular meeting and what made it so special. Here's Dr. Kirkovich. 
So the purpose of, of bringing together all these different diseases in these individuals is that we're all, we all found unique properties in the lysosome that we want to exploit that we think are going to be therapeutic. So you have lysosomal storage disease where we think if we enhance the activity of the lysosome so that it's able to do its garbage job better, then that will be therapeutic for us. The same is true for adult neurodegenerative diseases because um, when you look at Parkinson's affected cells, when you look at Alzheimer's affected cells, eventually they're filled with material they can't break down either. And so if we can enhance lysosomal function for them as well, that could be therapeutic as well, maybe by itself or in combination with something else. You've got the cancer community on the other end of the spectrum. They want to destroy the lysosome. If you can target only the lysosomes in the cancerous cells, you'll kill the cancerous cells. So by bringing everyone here, we're all either trying to get to it, manipulate its function one way, or inhibit its function another way. And that's why we're all here together today. Here's Dr. Walkley again. It's the first time that I've been at a conference that uh, is, really has the, both of these kinds of people. And so, but we're all interested in the same topics in terms of the vulnerabilities of the lysosome and lysosomal system, but coming at it from completely different perspectives. So it's, it's, a, it's a really nice um, uh, um, mixture of people at the meeting that are, uh, that are sharing ideas and uh, their perspectives on, on the lysosomal system. And that's really the reason this meeting was so special. Diseases are biological. And as we said before, every biological function is really complex and also completely interrelated. Millions of things are happening at any one time in the human body, and all of them are connected. Which means that there are millions of connections between different diseases. And to keep really fully abreast of all of the research that's been done or is being done that might have some impact on your own research into a particular disease you'd have to read thousands and thousands of papers spanning hundreds of fields. It'd be impossible. Here's Dr. Kirkovich. There are 13,000 science and technology journals. Most of them are monthly. And so that's an exhaustive amount of information. And so it becomes very difficult to sort of decipher how much you're going to read, not only on your own disease, you could read 24-7 on your own disease, but to read in other diseases and see if somebody else has an answer to a problem that you're fighting. And so what it has come down to is we've become very siloed. And so uh, diabetes researchers will, will focus with other diabetes researchers and lysosomal storage disease with lysosomal storage disease. This meeting was really innovative because it's a chance to smash through the walls of those silos. Instead of focusing on a particular disease, it brought people together across those single disease disciplines to look in as many ways as possible at the workings of lysosomes. It's an approach that really hasn't been tried very often before. A group in Boston, based around Massachusetts General Hospital, is working to break through these silos in another way, by creating a clinical database and biorepository for Batten and other kinds of NCLs. This effort, in collaboration with the Beyond Batten Disease Foundation and the New York Stem Cell Foundation, will make pluripotent stem cell lines available for researchers to use and study. 
These cell lines were created using a technique that takes human skin cells and manipulates them to turn back the clock in a way and restores to them the plasticity of embryonic stem cells, which are cells that can grow to become any of the hundreds of different kinds of cells in your body. These can then be programmed to turn into brain cells and give researchers the opportunity to study diseases like Batten as they unfold over time, something they can't do with the regular skin cells, cancerous cells, and rodent cells many of them are working with now. Here's Dr. Susan Kotman from the Center for Human Genetic Research at Mass General. So my lab at MGH really um, works closely in partnership with Catherine Sims, who um, is a clinician who's an expert in NCL. Uh, she sees NCL patients. She's a pediatric neurologist and a geneticist. And she really, um, many years ago, started um, a, a large collection of samples and information, um, DNA samples, cell lines, um, and created this NCL clinical database and biorepository with a number of goals and missions, including um, helping to uh, start to get some better information about capturing um, natural history that's connected to samples for, for further analysis and to make this um, information and samples available to clinical and basic researchers for their research. Um, and she's more recently been um, working together with a number of the other groups around the world who are building similar registries. We interface with that registry a lot, um, but really my interests are really from a more basic level, taking the information that she acquires from studying these patient samples and applying it to things that we can do to create um, genetically informed models that can help us really understand underlying biology of the disease. Making these samples and data of Batten and other NCLs available to more researchers might prove crucial in moving toward a cure not for just these classic lysosomal storage diseases, but also other neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, because in a lot of ways the Batten-afflicted cells really lend themselves to study. Here's Dr. Kuhn. The big advantage, if you can call it an advantage, that, for example, if you talk about NCL3, Batten's disease, which is the most prominent form of Batten, of the NCLs, uh, I think that studying patient cells, patient material, fibroblasts, converting them to stem cells, making urine out of them or different other cell types, I think is, is the way to go. And I think they're particularly promising because these cells have a phenotype. If you do the same studies in Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease, you know, it's a lot more difficult to study the molecular mechanism underlying disease because it's not, you don't get obvious phenotypes. The cells that you get are not immediately sick, whereas if you study patient fibroblasts or neurons derived from them, they have a phenotype. They're not normal. So I think I have a lot of hope that by studying what's going wrong in the cells, in these cells, that we get a better clue on what's going wrong and how to fix it or how to find a treatment. At this meeting, several exciting developments were presented and discussed that show real potential for making progress in understanding and fighting lysosomal conditions. It'd be impossible to talk about all of them in one podcast, but I'd like to share a couple of highlights that show their wide scope. One subject of much discussion was the delivery of any new treatments that might be developed. It turns out that even if an effective medication were discovered, it would be very hard to deliver it to the neurons. The body, understandably enough, is particularly interested in keeping toxins out of the brain, 
And so we have an elaborate filtration system called the blood-brain barrier that pulls everything out of the blood other than the nutrients it knows the brain needs before allowing it to pass on into the brain. This very often also blocks medications that are swallowed or injected in the normal way from entering the central nervous system. And so they have to be injected directly into the brain, a painful and dangerous process. There are several teams now working on ways to circumvent this barrier in less invasive ways so that as new treatments are discovered, they can actually be effectively administered. You know, like being able to use intrathecal, which is a spinal cord injection, versus a direct, uh, an injection directly into the uh, central nervous system, um, you know, the cortex of the brain. And, and that's a huge difference in safety profiling. So to be able to take a look at that clinical trial and learn, hey, I can do it the less invasive way and still get good coverage in the brain is wonderful news. And that's fantastic for us, because when we are ready to deliver something, we have options. Speaking of delivering new treatments, at least one piece of really good news was discussed at this event. While there is still no known treatment for Batten disease, Dr. Walkley and his group have discovered a treatment that seems to be promising for alleviating another lysosomal storage disorder that we mentioned earlier, Neiman-Pick disease type C. It's a strange discovery, though, because they found it more or less by accident, and they still don't have a good explanation for why it works the way it does. We discovered that there is a compound. It's called. It's a. It's a actually an FDA approved, uh, not drug, but an excipient, which is a solubilizer for, uh, for drugs, uh, called cyclodextrin. And uh, we discovered, actually, we discovered it by accident. But it's a quite a remarkable discovery in its own right anyway, that uh, when you treat mice with Neiman-Pick-C disease with cyclodextrin, the cyclodextrin through means that we don't completely understand yet uh, has the ability to, um, to relieve that block of cholesterol within the lysosome so it, it is able to escape. And so it actually corrects the storage process in this disease. So in this case, a disease that is similar to, again, to CLN3 in that it was a very enigmatic uh, lysosomal membrane protein that was defective and, and it looked like it was going to be impossible to treat. Uh, we just, um, again, it, through very serendipitous means, we discovered that this particular um, excipient, um, when given to the mice, actually is, is uh, acting as a drug and is, in fact, correcting the, the storage defect. It's been um, moved forward very rapidly and was picked up by the, the Therapeutics and Rare Neglected Disease uh, Group at NIH and is now in a phase one clinical trial for Neiman-Pixie disease. The importance of meetings like this one is to make sure that exciting discoveries like that are maximized. How do we understand that mechanism and use that knowledge to do as much good for the sufferers of as many different diseases as possible? In the end, there's little doubt that it's going to come down to partnership. As we heard, disease research can often seem like a vast field of insulated silos. Researchers tend to study deeply into a very particular set of mechanisms rather than broadly across the field. And academia, whose responsibility it is to identify crucial problems, and the pharma industry, 
whose job it is to create real-world solutions to those problems, often do a terrible job of communicating with each other. Their experiments are built differently, and the data doesn't always translate across the divide between them. To make progress more quickly for diseases like Batten and families like Craig's, we have to learn how to bridge those divides. To get people with a wide range of viewpoints and specialties who are all approaching the problem from different angles to talk to each other and figure out how to work together. Meetings like this one are a great place to start. Here's Craig Benson again. A clinical trial approaches to it are now you know, informing how these researchers are, are considering efforts to get a batten disease compound into a clinical trial by learning from, from these guys. If you don't do a conference like this, those people probably never talk to each other. I just can't, uh, you know, overstate the importance of the need for collaboration, the need for partnering, the need for leveraging. We've seen examples where research findings that we've uh, funded in batten disease have then led to uh, over $25 million in additional investment to apply those findings to other rare diseases. Uh, that, that, okay, so that's not directly work on batten disease, but as they find success, as they glean new discoveries in those other, you know, sort of related rare diseases, we'll get the benefit ultimately of those findings too. So it all kind of comes full circle. So it's really a collaborative, partnered, leveraged approach that, uh, that we've implemented and, and we believe is the only way we can succeed because we know we can't do it by ourselves. Thanks so much for listening to the New York Academy of Sciences podcast. It was produced by David Hoffman with administrative oversight by Dr. Siobhan Addy, Program Manager for Life Sciences. Special thanks to the experts who appeared in it, Mr. T. Craig Benson and Dr. Danielle Kirkovich of the Beyond Batten Disease Foundation, Dr. Stephen Walkley of the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Dr. Rainer Kuhn of Evotech AG and the NCL Foundation Germany, Dr. Matthew Macheni of Biogen IDEC Incorporated, Dr. Forbes Porter of the National Institutes of Health, and Dr. Susan Cotman of Massachusetts General Hospital. This episode of the podcast was a non-for-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences, www.nyas.org, co-presented by the Beyond Batten Disease Foundation, www.beyondbatten.org. 